Okay, so this is our Simon Dong reading group starting up again after a couple weeks. Um, so we're picking up from page 628 of the PDF. Last time we read through um, a few shorter sections um, on the end of the 18th century uh, and onwards. In these sections, Simon Dong talks about uh, what he calls here Schwärmerei. This is a, a, a term that Kant used and was sort of prevalent in 18th century Germany for um, enthusiasm or a kind of religious obscurantism. Um, and uh, so the idea is, is a kind of participation in uh, something that surpasses human reason, uh, in some sort of spiritual reality that's beyond human reason. Uh, and, and so this, this kind of um, uh, experience or this a search for this kind of experience was a, a common theme in a lot of uh, authors around this time. And so we looked at um, some of the uh, sort of uh, demonstrations that were done having to do with electricity. Um, so we have uh, these um, demonstrations where you have a, a chain of people holding hands and then uh, an electric current is passed from one end of the chain to the other. Uh, and and there, these were like extremely popular in, uh, in Europe in the late 18th century. Um, you know, everyone was wanted to, you know, have one of these demonstrations done. Um, and so electricity is this sort of elemental force um, that, you know, in, in lightning and uh, um, it's, it's this um, natural force that has this sort of obscure um, effect on us and on the natural world. Uh, and we sort of participate in it by doing these um, sort of demonstrations. So this was one instance of this sort of um, search for this experience that surpasses human reason. Uh, and then we, we looked at, um, we sort of quickly went through a few different authors. Uh, I won't go through them all in detail, um, but um, with, with Lessing and Herder and, uh, and Goethe as well, there's a, a sort of um, dynamical quality to their work. Uh, they're all interested in uh, not so much um, like categorizing different uh, human activities or or different elements of nature. They they want to look at the uh, development of these different principles or different aspects of nature. Uh, so um, Herda, for instance, has um, his book uh, uh, "Ideas Towards a Philosophy of History." I think is the title. Um, um, it's it's a sort of um, it starts with the formation of the solar system and, uh, you know, then the formation of the earth and then where, how animals appear and, and human beings arise out of that uh, environment. So it's a, a, a sort of quasi-evolutionary history of the emergence of human beings. And then from there, it, it goes through human history. Uh, so it's, it's about this sort of developmental um, uh, presentation of uh, what it is to be a human being. Uh, and then Goethe likewise has um, his famous book on the metamorphosis of plants, uh, where he, he wants to show how, uh, you know, different aspects of the flower uh, and other parts of plants are all forms of leaves that have been transformed. So uh, the leaves undergo transformations that produce all these different structures that don't necessarily look like leaves on the surface. And so it's, a, again, a sort of... Um, developmental conception of nature. So this is uh, a sort of common characteristic of, uh, of all these authors in the late 18th century, 
is this idea of the natural world as being a world that undergoes development. And uh, we'll see that this conception of, de- of a developmental um, aspect of the world sort of undergoes transformation when we get to the 19th century. Um, and uh, we can probably tie this with the 19th century notion of progress. Um, and we'll see, I think, uh, a bit about that in, in this ni- 19th century section that we're going to read for today. Okay, so let me just get a drink and then I can read the first uh, section. Okay, beginning of the 19th century, Hegel, Kant, Marx. Sociological thought marks the advent of a new period of reflection on the individual. After having exhausted all the ways of thinking the individual according to the order of simultaneity, then according to the order of succession, and finally according to the object into which he projects himself, either the artificial object that is a technical thing or human institution, or the natural object to which he's connected through his genesis, like the crystalline lattice to the whole crystal. And with the critical period having posited the necessity of recommencing to take up problems in a new spirit, it seems that thought renewed this vast movement of interrogation, first bearing on the order of simultaneity, then on the order of succession, and finally on the object in which the individual being is expressed or to which he is connected. But the position of the problems is no longer effectuated on the same level. The individual is no longer an exemplar of being. He is always one among several. He is the member of a collectivity. The counterpart to this advent of sociology is that of the theory of species, of genetics, and of the theory of races. The order of simultaneity, as well as the order of succession, is defined by way of the inter-individual rapport. Society as a system of simultaneity and the species as a system of succession frame the individual and make it such that he is no longer studied as an absolute. The third stage, coming after the search for the order of simultaneity and for the order of succession, has not ended. It made its appearance with the thought of Marx, who sought to define man collectively by his rapport to the technically elaborated object, which contains a reference both to the order of simultaneity and to the order of succession, insofar as a part of human reality is found to be contained in capital, and more generally in the form of nature's exploitation by man, which are considered to be evolving in time. Above Marxist theory, there are indeed presuppositions of this doctrine that are new with respect to sociology and the theory of evolution, because they include the reference to an object that expresses man, i.e. the artificial object. A search for man's expression in the natural object also appears in our era. As noted by Emile Breillet, what changed at the beginning of the 19th century is the way in which man appears to himself. Hegel, for example, in his philosophy of history, refuses the attempt made by Rousseau to grasp an immediate and absolute essence of man, to which mores would be added afterwards. As Breillet says, taking up Hegel's thesis again, the human being is defined only as burdened with history, and humanity will not be attained by an abstraction that strips away everything it has acquired, but on the contrary, by the very law of this acquisition that makes it what it incrementally is. Knowledge is mediate. It only takes place by reflecting the becoming that produced it. This vision of human reality and of all philosophical problems grasps the individual not as a fully made reality, endowed by itself with reality and substantiality, but as a being who represents a certain moment of a reality faster than it. This integration into the order of the successive corresponds for Auguste Comte to an integration into the order of of the simultaneous, through which the integration into the order of the successive takes place. The two forms of integration in fact exist for Hegel as well as for Auguste Comte, but for Hegel, integration into the order of the successive is fundamental, while for Auguste Comte, integration into the order of the simultaneous is what is fundamental. History and society are the two realities on the basis of which individual reality can be grasped. Marx will seek to unite these two basic realities within the reality of class, which has a social aspect and a historical meaning at the same time, and effectuates an intersecting of the two orders. 
The individual is then grasped as the integral part of a class. Faith, instinct, love of humanity or, or altruism, the intuition of becoming, and class consciousness replaced the analysis of the, of the 18th century, which sought to grasp the expression of the individual in the object. The individual rediscovers within himself the feeling of nationality, of race as the guiding forces of events, or of the positivity of thought as the conclusion of human becoming. And it is through this discovery that the individual grasps his essence. According to Renan's phrasing, the individual feels himself participating in the Tower of Babel, the floors of which are peoples. History is a faith and a source of energy. The human individual becomes aware of himself through the human sciences. The mediation is introduced into self-knowledge. The individual draws the forces of his action from a nature which is an immense reservoir of energy. Nature is no longer conceived as a structure, but as an ensemble of fields and of potential. In general, the vitalist character of the dynamism of the 19th century is revealed, and certainly with good reason. But it should be added that the discovery of the laws of electromagnetic induction, the precise measurement of fields, contributed to providing new schemas for reflexive thought. The individual is connected back to the system that surrounds him, even in the absence of any material contact, because he is in a field. The cohesion of the real is that, it, that of an ensemble of fields. Fields exert an action extremely different from the actions by contact of the static or the dynamic in mechanics, whereas antitypy is uh, a property characteristic of material solids of mechanics, which makes it such that there can be only a single solid in one place, excluding all superposition and simultaneity of action. In the same place, there can be a multitude of fields without acting on one another, but all acting simultaneously on a single object in that place. For example, a body can be submitted at the same time to a magnetic field, an electrical field, and a gravitational field. The physical individual is that which is sensitive to fields, while fields not, on, not only do not exclude one another, but are not generally sensitive to one another. Furthermore, nascent thermodynamics also provided new schemas of thought, introducing a remarkable extension to the notion of potential energy and confirming at the very heart of scientific rationality the irreversibility of energetic transformations according to the principle of the increase in the entropy of a closed system. The singular being as well as the particular state are found to be connected to a universe according to space and time. A historical law appears in the physics of energy. The geometry of forces becomes that of fields and gradients. These realities are not mysterious, properly speaking. They are measurable with as much precision as those of 18th century physics, but they introduce schemas of thought in which the whole is no longer reducible to the sum or combination of elements. The place and the moment are no longer Kant's ideal diversity. The pure dispersion of phenomena, the phenomenon is already a spatial uh, and temporal system in the form of a field or law of convergence of the series of successive states. Um, so we have here um, a sort of recapitulation of um, the, the schema of the um, thought of the individual now applied to society. Uh, so where uh, Simon Dong has identified these uh, different ways of thinking of the individual, either according to the order of succession or the order of simultaneity, um, now we have the, the thinking of society either as uh, according to the order of succession or according to the order of simultaneity. So Simon Do identifies Hegel with this order of succession taken as primary, and then Comte as uh, the order of uh, simultaneity taken as primary. Um, and then he takes Marx to be a kind of uh, synthesis of the two or uh, a way of thinking simultaneity and uh, and um, succession together. And, and then he also um, sort of compares this or, or draws an analogy with the development of physics in the 19th century. So we have, uh, in the order of simultaneity, we have the notion of a field, um, the electromagnetic field in particular, 
uh, appears in the 19th century. And so this is a kind of reality that surpasses the individual um, and that exists, um, uh, that surrounds the individual and um, occupies space without uh, sort of filling it up. So you can have more than one field. You can have a magnetic field and uh, a gravitational field, for example, both um, acting on a single point, but without those two fields interacting with each other. Uh, and then the other uh, sort of important physical development or development in physics that Simon Don points to is the, the development of thermodynamics, which also appears in the 19th century. And so the second law of thermodynamics has to do with the uh, direction of time and the fact that uh, entropy always increases in a closed system. Uh, and so now physics, um, as a result of this law or in connection with this law, of thermodynamics now has a, a sort of directionality to time, whereas in Newtonian mechanics, uh, you can uh, just any any um, uh, sort of transformation of a system in Newtonian mechanics, if you just reverse the time direction, if you take the the variable t and you put a minus sign in front of it, then that that same uh, transformation sort of played in reverse is still um, a valid transformation in Newtonian mechanics. So time has no uh, sort of privileged direction in Newtonian mechanics, whereas in thermodynamics, there, there is a direction of time. The, the direction in which entropy increases is always the, the direction in which time is, uh, is flowing or, or passing. Uh, and so uh, physics now has a sort of historical dimension to it that didn't exist uh, prior to the 19th century. So uh, the notion of a field in which individuals are, are sort of embedded, and then the notion of uh, of entropy increasing over time and a directionality to time. Uh, these are the two physical notions that Simon Don sees as, as being sort of the analogs or the equivalents of the uh, order of succession and the order of simultaneity in, uh, in philosophy. Yeah, my comments on this section are mostly about the references to Kant, but we're about to talk about that um, in the next section, so maybe I'll hold off. But I think that the... What you were just saying about the directionality of of um, entropy uh, as opposed to the lack of directionality in Newtonian mechanics maybe what he's talking about with the the way that physics is no longer Kantian in the nineteenth century because it the mind doesn't need to contribute the directionality like it does in the analogies um, for Kant you know to uh, to give a uh, directionality to cause and effect, which otherwise would be reversible, we need the the way that the categories are applied in the analogies in the first critique. Yeah, and this is still a sort of open problem in um, philosophy of physics: is how do we uh, integrate? Um, so, uh, quantum physics is uh, is a sort of is, is similar to Newtonian physics in the sense that it doesn't have a privileged role for time. Uh, for a directionality of time, um, and uh, uh, even and, and then general relativity as well. Uh, time is just one of the four dimensions of space-time, uh, and uh, it's only in thermodynamics that we have uh, a sort of um, directionality of time. Uh, but then, how to sort of reconcile these two uh, different ways of understanding time? Time as just one of the four space-time dimensions or just uh, one variable among others on the one hand, and then time as uh, something that flows or progresses or, or passes 
in a certain direction, on the other hand. Um, and this, this is a, a, a sort of difficult problem. Uh, and, you know, there's, there have been proposals that are uh, sort of quasi-Kantian in form in the sense that they take time, the, the passing of time, to be something that is uh, closely tied up with the notion of subjectivity. Um, and, but I think in general, they sort of reverse the direction of explanation. So they, they take it that subjectivity is something that can only exist uh, when they're in, in circumstances in which there is um, a decrease of entropy, or sorry, an increase of, of entropy happening. Um, so this is something that, so uh, uh, a situation in which there's an increase of entropy is one in which time is, is passing for a subject, uh, essentially, is, is the, the order of explanation. Um, and uh, yeah, so the, the notion of, of time as having a direction and the notion of subjectivity uh, are probably closely connected to each other. Uh, and it's, it's difficult to sort of um, uh, disentangle these two notions and figure out which one is more fundamental to the other and then how how those two notions together sort of fit in with the more fundamental physics, the physics of uh, general relativity and quantum mechanics, and uh, and how they sort of are connected to this um, other notion of time as just one uh, one dimension of space time. That's really interesting. The subjectivity is being conditioned by entropy or a kind of experience of or being, I guess, a kind of experience of entropy. Yeah, and and it's it's a it's a difficult um, it's a sort of subtle issue also because um, so with the 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 passing of time would have to do with the increase of entropy. Uh, so the direction in which time passes is always the direction in which entropy is increasing. Uh, but then on the other hand, um, for living beings, um, there has to be a sort of um, um, right um, neg entropy is the term that's sometimes used. So a, a, a negative entropy. Um, which has to do with the fact that living beings are open systems. So living beings are always uh, taking in energy and matter from their environments. Uh, and um, they, so ultimately, you know, uh, in, in the case of the Earth, it, it depends on the fact that the sun is constantly streaming energy into the Earth. It's only because of that that we can have living beings that exist in far from equilibrium states um, in, a, in a sort of stable form. Um, and, uh, and so... Subjectivity, uh, if if we sort of presume, which seems plausible, that subjectivity also um, depends on life in some degree, so only living beings can be uh, subjects, uh, then we have uh, a sort of second role of entropy, um, where uh, entropy also has to, um, we also have to have a, a sort of um, counter to that increase of entropy uh, in order for subjectivity to appear. So it, it, so the the relationship between entropy and subjectivity is a is a complicated one. Yeah, that's really interesting. Is the was it Heisenberg who wrote that paper on life as neg entropy? Yeah, I think he's probably the first one to um, sort of make that identification. He has a, a set of lectures called "What Is Life." Uh, so that was in right. the fifties, I think, when. Uh, um, uh, so he's writing um, before DNA was identified. Um, uh, or isolated, um, but um, yeah. So this this notion of life as um, involving uh, a kind of um, neg entropy or um, uh, an isolation from the general um, increase of entropy is a is an important one that has uh, 
I think his exact formulation is probably not used anymore, but uh, that that's still like a, a general um, uh, principle that's used in in sort of uh, theoretical biology or or philosophy of biology. Interesting. And yeah, of course, we can tie this also into um, and so entropy has a, a close relationship with information. Um, when you like in the mathematical theory of information, uh, the Shannon and Weaver theory, um, one of the uh, uh, quantities that is measured is, is called entropy. Um, although the relationship between that kind of entropy and um, entropy and thermodynamics is uh, sort of a contested one, and whether whether we should identify them or or think of them as distinct is, is something that people have uh, debated. Um, but uh, entropy in general has something to do with information in the sense that um, uh, uh, a situation with low entropy is one in which um, you can make distinctions or or um, you can distinguish different states of uh, like uh, you know uh, a metal bar that is hot at one end and, and cold at the other end is one in which you have different states that you can distinguish whereas the evolution through time of that metal bar will be towards uh, a single uniform temperature which has no uh, distinct states um, to distinguish and so um, in some sense the metal bar with one end heated um, has more information there's more sort of distinctness to to the situation uh, as opposed to the the uniformly um, heated bar at the end of the evolution uh, has has a low low amount of information in the sense that it has only the one state that doesn't vary across the bar uh, and so um, there yeah there's definitely a, a relationship between information and entropy um, and uh, how we can tie this in with um, Simon Don's notion of information is, is probably an interesting question to pursue as well okay uh, that was a, a bit of a digression but um, uh, an interesting one, um, but uh, we can continue with the rest uh, with the text. Um, yeah, let's read the whole of the section relation with Kant. If someone else would like to read, yeah, I can read this section. Relation with Kant: a critique of knowledge like the one Kant produced can no longer apply to the world of electromagnetism or thermodynamics, for the field or the law of the increase in entropy are not only a way. Uh, to connect phenomena, but also the very weft of phenomena, their manner of being, and more than their condition of appearing. The a priori forms of space and time as Kant defined them cannot account for the fact that the manifold of sensibility is unified prior to any apprehension in the form of a field or convergent series. The field, uh, the field and the convergent series of the transformations of energy are neither a sensible intuition nor an a priori form of sensibility. They are no longer the result of a synthesis, but a coherence belonging to phenomena, which displaces the very notion of phenomenon and prevents the distinction between noumenon and phenomenon from persisting in the way Kant considered it. The simple opposition between subject and object is no longer possible. Knowledge discovers in the object certain forms of coherence that are not phenomenal. The field or the convergence of the series of transformations is something quite different from a law. These realities separate and distribute the real as much as they unify it. They distinguish in order to synthesize. The rapport of the multiplicity of the sensible to the unity of the understanding can no longer be upheld. The type of intelligibility is no longer that of the law, the rapport between phenomena, but that of the field, of the spatial domain or temporal series. 
This is not a unification of the manifold, but the postulation of a system of the real prior to all apprehension. The given, the starting point, is no longer the phenomenon, but the system or the series given at the same time as the terms. The system and the series are the phenomena in what must be explained. Uh, one does not start with terms that would need to be unified, but with domains, with coherences whose extent and expression must be found. The individual can no longer be identified with an isolated elementary being. Great scientific discoveries of the 19th century were syntheses that simultaneously introduced the continuity and diversification of the real, particularly Maxwell's theoretical synthesis unifying the laws of optics and the laws of electricity in the formula of the propagation of electromagnetic perturbations, which defines the electromagnetic field. What is, remar what is quite remarkable in this new stage of science is that there is not on the one hand, diversity at the starting point, and on the other, unity obtained through the imposition of a law onto the manifold of the sensible. There is and there remains diversity and unity from the starting point to the end point. What scientific thought carries out is not an identification, but a universalization through the expansion of the domain. The law becomes the formula of the domain's continuity. Thus, in the electromagnetic theory of light, it cannot be said that Maxwell, properly speaking, discovered and identity between an electromagnetic perturbation and light, the formula that states the characteristics of an electromagnetic field is also, and at the same time, what allows us to distinguish different frequencies and to predict the differences of phenomena according to differences of frequency, not just for light compared to a longer or shorter wave, but also for very nearby wavelengths belonging to visible light, for example, that of indigo and violet. What Maxwell discovers is not so much the unity, but the homogeneous continuity of a domain of diversity constituted by a schematism whose characteristic parameters are capable of continuous variation, excluding classification. This continuity of a domain is therefore very different from a unity through real identification, like that of the attraction of stars and the force of gravity, or formal identification, like that of gravitational attraction and electrostatic attraction. The domain of reality discovered by Maxwell is homogeneous but not identical and it submits to a continuous formal variation. Its homogeneity is that of a schematism, not of a substantial reality. But it is no longer just a homogeneity of formula alone. There is unity in the energetic characteristics. Science of the 19th century tends toward the energetics of Ostwald, who wants to condense all sciences into one. In the individual, there is a form of energy that is at once nothing and everything, and that constitutes the homogeneity of the individual domain through the homogeneity of its schematism. The will, which is weak in Sankur and strong in Stendhal's heroes, is that which introduces a common schematism into all situations and domains. It is the will that leads Faust's soul, desiccated by knowledge, to attain through the arts of magic, the supreme powers of nature, the mothers, and to carry out every transmutation. Feeling and the dream are the, fru the fruitful grounds upon which the will is born. In the form of the messianic pride of the inventors of systems, in the fervor of the traditionalist, in the discovery of a new faith, as well as in hopelessness and resignation, there is the will, like a basic schema, always homogeneous with respect to itself, but infinitely diverse in its situations and manifestations. The will is what connects the individual being to the world and to history. It is what can become every act and generate every feeling. It forms the internal continuity and coherence of the individual, just as it establishes the link of reciprocal causality in the social world with the social world and historical becoming. The individual is an element of will and an ensemble of fields of forces. 
despite Balzac's assertion the 19th century wanted to create a physics more so than a chemistry of characters. It is a chemistry only in the sense in which Balzac understands it when, with Balthazar play in the quest of the absolute, he wants to discover nitrogen in nitrogen, the origin of all life and energy. This elementary will of the individual seeks to encounter in the world a vaster and stronger will, that of a historical thotum, of an imminent law that scoffs at resistances. The individual is not the center of a decision, but of an adhesion, not of an initiative, but of an encounter. The individual does not posit the real through himself. He associates himself with the real as he makes himself. When he discovers the sense of this will imminent to the real, it has been said that this was the age of feeling. In reality, there is no distinction between feeling and the will to adhesion. For feeling is the prophetic force that introduces the sense of becoming. What is suitable for the will that proceeds and assumes decision is analytical, intellectual knowledge. But for the will that seeks consent, what is suitable is the affective intuition that orients the being in this field of forces that the world is. Bonald, Joseph de Mestre, Auguste Comte, Saint-Simon, Fourier are born by affective intuition within the direction of the fathom in which their will unites. What traditionalism seeks is indeed a principle independent of the arbitrariness of intellectual knowledge so that the individual will can adhere to it. Okay, yeah, obviously there's a ton in this section. Um, and I find myself in the uncomfortable position of wanting to defend Kant here uh, because I don't I, I just wish he had spent a lot more time on this because I'm sure that you know this I'm sure he has an interesting critique but it just doesn't I don't it doesn't seem like it's really elaborated because obviously it, it just doesn't seem to be a real critique to say well the phenomena we can't think of these these things in terms of phenomena because there's this kind of thoroughgoing objective coherence in which they stand with relation to one another. Because obviously Kant or a Kantian would just say, yeah, obviously that's that's what phenomena is, is it's as, you know, the world as it appears to us in accordance with the, you know, the way that the understanding acts on sensibility to produce this coherent and law-abiding world of appearances. I think um, I think it, it's definitely open to uh, a Kantian you know, looking at 19th century science to say that, you know, this is just another instance or maybe a more complicated instance of the same type of process as Kant identified in 18th century science, um, where you have, um, uh, you know, instead of um, the Newtonian laws of, uh, of mechanics, you have um, maybe more complicated laws of, of electromagnetic um, uh, fields and of thermodynamics. Um, so there, there would be a kind of, in the same way, you would still have a kind of unification of phenomena um, through the action of the understanding on sensibility. Um, but I think what the, the type of contrast that Simon Dao is trying to get at here, I think, is that um, in, in the case of electromagnetism, for example, the, um, the scientific uh, positing of the electromagnetic field uh, doesn't sort of play the role of taking different phenomena and then unifying them under a certain law. Uh, it doesn't say that. Um, uh, so the the model here would be um, the way that the Newtonian theory of gravitation takes the 
um, folding of objects to the surface of the Earth and then the orbit of the Earth around the sun to be two uh, phenomena that fall under the same law. Uh, and, and so it sort of unifies these phenomena by, um, by subordinating them or um, um, by putting them as uh, phenomena under one law. Uh, whereas in the case of electromagnetism, um, what Maxwell does is not so much to say that um, that um, light and electricity are two phenomena um, that fall under one law, but instead it's to posit this domain, this continuous domain of transformation of um, that allows for um, both visible light uh, in its various uh, frequencies and then uh, various forms of invisible electromagnetic radiation. Uh, and, and so Simon Dom has talked about this uh, um, sort of transductive mode of thinking in, in volume one. Uh, we, we saw this in volume one, where he talks about how in the electromagnetic spectrum, we have uh, a way of thinking in which we uh, have a sort of continuous variation across the domain, as opposed to uh, at a species and genus um, classification type structure. And I think it's that type of contrast is what he's trying to get at here. Um, so the Kantian model of science is one in which we um, sort of uh, unify um, our picture of the world through um, subordinating phenomena to laws. Uh, and then our capacity to do that is grounded in the fact that the laws have to do with the um, uh, structure of the understanding. Uh, whereas in 19th century physics, we have instead this um, sort of positing of a domain of transduction in which we are no longer subordinating phenomena to laws, but instead we're um, producing this continuous domain of variation in which various phenomena appear. Yeah, that makes sense. And that makes me want to go back to that reference to Kant in, the, in volume one, where he has this pretty brief section where he basically says, well, this is why I don't need to worry about uh, kind of a Kantian objection to my epistemology because of, um, if I remember correctly, it's, it's because of uh, the, you know, the transductivity of knowledge, which is outlined in, in like the allegmatics piece um, that because we can think the, the, analogically valid relation between these different domains and because it's the relation that's primary that uh the kantian objection is therefore not appropriate somehow but i need to uh, go back to that yeah he he does sort of go through it a, a little bit quickly but i think the idea is that transduction is both uh, a mode of thought and a mode of being um so the um when we um sort of perform transduction in our thinking, we're actually uh, sort of implementing transduction uh, as, a, as a mode of being, uh, as opposed to trying to uh, sort of reflect um, in our thought some uh, process or uh, property of, uh, of uh, being outside our thought, which is um, sort of the picture that Kant wants to say is, is, not, um, uh, is not sort of workable. Um, so what we're doing when we when we think transductively, when we um, when Maxwell, for example, puts together this notion of the electromagnetic spectrum, uh, he's he's um, actually um, 
sort of uh, doing transduction at the same time as he's thinking about transduction. Uh, and so he's he's um, sort of setting transduction to work as opposed to, you know, looking at a transductive process and then trying to um, reflect that transductive process in thought uh, outside of that process. So I think that's the picture that Simon Do wants us to sort of um, move towards is, is transduction as a process that occurs both in thought and in the world that we think about. Um, and it's the same process, the same transductive process that is occurring uh, on both sides of the subject-object divide or between that subject-object um, divide. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. I still wish he had spent more time on Kant here. Yeah, it would have been, and, and we, we were talking about this a little bit before we started recording, but um, it's, it's a strange um, sort of choice of construction of this text, that this sort of history of philosophy to um, go through the history of 18th century philosophy and talk about some, you know, seemingly minor figures and then um, just sort of skip over Kant and go into the 19th century and then have a section on the relationship with Kant, but not have a section actually on Kant himself. Um, and uh, it would have been interesting to, to see um, what Simon Don would have made of, uh, of Kant's, um, you know, doctrine of the individual. There, there's quite a bit of, you know, there's a lot to do with um, with what Kant has to say about the nature of individuality in, in uh, the physical world and um, in relation to his practical philosophy as well. Um, and so that would be, um, there would have been very interesting to see what Simon Dong had to say about Kant on the notion of the individual. Yeah, definitely. Um, and then the other bit, so that we talked about the the first part of uh, the passage that we just read, but there's also the second part where he he brings up this notion of the will, um, and this it, it's a kind of a strange transition or sort of absence of a transition where he he's talking about 19th century physics and and its relation to Kant, and then he just sort of jumps immediately into talking about the will. Um, but I think the idea, um, well, it, it sort of becomes clearer as we read the next sections, I think. But um, the idea here is that um, uh, in the same way that in 19th century physics, we have this notion of a electromagnetic spectrum and electromagnetic fields that sort of um, surpass the individual. The individual is always incorporated or integrated into uh, an environment um, in which there are all these fields that act on the individual. Um, uh, in the same way, the, the social environment of the individual acts on the individual as if uh, through the action of a field. Um, so the individual entity, the individual person, in the case of social reality, um, is, is always um, integrated into something greater than them uh, that um, sort of brings about the transformations that that individual person undergoes. Uh, and and so the will here is uh, a kind of um, principle of adequation to this greater reality. So um, the question or the the problem is to try to uh, that that a number of nineteenth century writers will pick up is to try to um, find a way to integrate the will of the individual with the um, the social field in which the individual is inserted. Uh, so what exactly that relation is supposed to look like is something that different authors have different ways of presenting. Um, and so Simon Don points to what he calls the tr traditionalists. Uh, so we'll see 
a couple of those in the next couple sections. Um, so these are people who um, take the social order to be fundamental and primary, uh, and then the individual is always subordinated to that social order. And um, and the what is sort of the the principle by which the social order should be governed is one of stability. Um, so the the social order should stay the same or it should be stable, uh, and then any attempts to sort of transform that social order are um, are uh, dangerous because they are sort of getting the uh, order of of society backwards. They're trying to subordinate the social order to the needs of the individual as opposed to the other way around. Uh, and then we have sort of, well, Simonon doesn't talk about these these people that much, but they're the sort of utopian writers like Saint-Simon and Fourier um, who try to do the other direction. They try to come up with these um, proposals for for what the social order should look like uh, in such a way that the individual would be integrated into that order in a, a, a sort of harmonious way. So um, whereas uh, society as they see it is, uh, involves this sort of conflict between the individual's needs and the uh, requirements that society imposes on them in this utopian order that they're proposing, the individual would be inserted into the order of society in, uh, in a way that wouldn't have this kind of conflict. Uh, and so this is sort of uh, looking at the relationship between the individual and the social in, a, in an opposite direction to the way that the, the traditionalists are going to look at it. Um, so we want to rearrange the social order in such a way that uh, the individual can be integrated into it um, without conflict. That's sort of the, the problem that these um, writers set for themselves. Okay, um, let's go on to the next section. Um, Joseph de Maître, if uh, someone else would like to read. Okay, let me read. Sure. Uh, Joseph de Maître. According to Joseph de Maître, the individual should adhere to uh, the supernatural, which is denied and obliterated by the natural sciences. Religious life is the communication of man with the sphere superior to humanity. Joseph de Maître. Uh, transposes Illuminism and uh, Martinism into religious doctrine. The individual being submits to this fact, fatum, it uh, quotes, its active being exerts its action and in a circle, sketched out of out for, out for it without ever being able to escape. End of quotes. Nevertheless, despite the somewhat cellular structure of the universe, there can be a symptomatic relationship between one order of reality and another. The animal's instinct can be, uh, uh, quotes, a symptoma, um, uh, symptotic with a reason, end of quotes. A reason, in turn, can be a symptotic with the superior minds, certain phenomena of the inferior order that are inexplicable through this order itself could be due to the action of this superior order. The action of the superior order on the inferior order is possible, but this action is irreversible. A mysterious divine action penetrates the order of matter. For the individual, the, the field of the possible is not limited by the consideration of natural causes. 
The individual being, in fact, can also be in veritable communication with the spirit order as well as with the inferior order. He is inserted in both orders and he possesses two types of effectiveness which are not at all identical. Prayer can be as effective against lightning as a lightning rod. They act on the same reality but through totally different means because they are part of two different orders, the inferior and the superior. The Lyonnais Illuminism, known to Joseph de Maistre, transforms into a philosophy that places individual in the midst of network forces and fields of different orders. The fields of superior forces become becomes superposed on the system of material realities without modifying this system, since it is not sensitive to this field. Thus, a magnetic field can be superposed on a system of gra uh, gravitational masses without modifying it at all. But if a body is found in the system that possesses both the gravitational mass, like the others, magnetic masses that belong to it alone, it will be out of this whole system, connected to the magnetic field by the forces, and and yet will conserve its gra uh, gravitational mass within the system in which it is inserted without modification of the system. It is, a f it is in fact, as an individual sensitive to the magnetic field, and not as a gravitational mass forming part of the system of the other gravitational forces. That this individual is in a relation of participation with the magnetic field. In the same way, the enlightened is in a relation with the order of supernatural forces, while remaining asserted in, in the order of natural realities, while submitting to the actions and uh, reactions of these realities. The individual is not part of a single system. Even when he is inserted in a system, the individual surpasses it. Surpasses it overflows it and is connected to a superior reality that he had never managed to comprehend. It is therefore through the adhesion of the will that the individual is connected to this superior order of forces, not through the intelligence, the justice and providence of the supernatural order have nothing to do with the human justice and providence, the reversibility of the of the culprit's wrongs against the, the innocence is opposed to the culprit's responsibility. Religious sacrifices, wars, the French Revolution invoke a type of relation that we cannot understand, which is analog to that of the reversibility of wrongs. That's it. We'll continue. Uh, let's stop here uh, for this section. Um... Yeah, I mean, I don't have a lot to say about um, Demaitre. Um, he was a, a one of these traditionalists that Simonot mentions in the previous section. So he's he's writing uh, primarily in opposition to the French Revolution, and so he sees the French Revolution as a sort of illegitimate attempt to subordinate the social order to the needs of the individual, um, as opposed to subordinating the individual to the social order. And um, and so there's this picture of the social order as uh, sort of evolving in a, this uh, uh, natural way um, so that institutions that exist are are the result of uh, this evolution and then trying to change these institutions through the use of our reason, you know, you know looking at social arrangements and saying, you know, this is not a, a rational social arrangement, it's a kind of um, 
uh, overturning of that order uh, and as a kind of uh, arrogance of reason. Um, and uh, uh, and then this natural social order is is sort of integrated into the supernatural order. Um, and uh, and so we, again, you know, shouldn't be trying to overturn existing social orders uh, in light of our our um, judgment of what a better social order would look like. We should um, sort of integrate our will as individuals into the existing social order uh, without trying to overturn it. Here, what is uh, super, how, how we can distinct, just distinguish like super order and then superior order and inferior order? Uh, so like, here, I think um, it's it has to do with the uh, the order of nature and then the divine order that is superior to it. So the, the inferior order would be the the order of nature, um, and then the the divine order would be the the superior order. Um, and so there's this uh, idea that um, the natural order is sort of incorporated into or is subordinated to the the divine order. Uh, and so um, even though the natural world has its own laws and structures and so on. Um, it, it's uh, it's still subject to the action of the divine order in which uh, it is incorporated or which is um, sort of hovering above it, I guess. Um, but yeah, so that's that's what the distinction between inferior and superior orders has has to do with here. So definitely, then. Um, so um, the the this person's name is pronounced maître, not mestre, first. Yes, that's right. Uh, maître, and then. Uh, this person thinks like there's a hierarchical order between nature and God that is not uh, kind of identical. Like uh, as we can see in the Spinoza, like uh, nature uh, equal to God as far as I understand. But here, uh, divine God's order comes to kind of first, and then nature order is as you said, like subordinate so to the God's will, something like that. Then, then human beings like a world is in between them. That's that's what it says here, right? Yeah, I think that's right. Um, he's definitely not uh, a Spinozist, so he he doesn't take God and nature to be identical. Um, and uh, the divine order is superior to the natural order, and so you know things like miracles can happen um, by the sort of intervention of the divine order into the natural order. Thank you. He sort of seems like, uh, as I mentioned earlier, I've been reading about the like pantheism controversy stuff, but he seems kind of like Jacobi or these other thinkers who were um, worried about or skeptical of the use of reason to criticize common sense and faith. But I guess that's like a, maybe a, you know, a much older issue in philosophy of the relationship between reason and, and dogma. Um, I actually think Jacobi is really interesting, but like... I tend to agree with like his criticisms of some of the Enlightenment um, positions, but then I think he draws the like absolutely opposite conclusion <laughs> from like what I would draw, which is you know he's always he basically argues for this irrational um, uh, irrational support of common sense and faith as opposed to just kind of realizing that reason can't sustain either one. Yeah, yeah, Eucopi is definitely an interesting figure. Um... And and I agree with you that I I find his um, uh, conclusions that he arrives at um, pretty unsympathetic. Um, 
but um, he he definitely poses interesting problems, and he he's I would say he's a he's a careful writer in the sense that he he actually sort of takes seriously people like Kant and Fichte and and um, wants to see um, sort of the he wants to sort of push their thought to its its furthest consequences and then say that you know this is sort of unacceptable uh, and and therefore we have to um, deny the capacity of reason to um, sort of have a, a real knowledge of the world that that is uh, an improvement or is superior to um, common sense and faith. Um, and uh, yeah, so that's, it's definitely a, a bigger problem than just, uh, or it, it extends beyond um, Jacobi uh, and, and this sort of religious context. But um, I think it, there's a, um, a, a, a more general problem of, you know, what, to what extent we should consider reason to be something um, that we can rely on uh, or that can uh, sort of guide our, our action. Uh, so you, uh, for example, in, in Hume, um, who Jacobi writes about as well, but Hume um, argues uh, in uh, his more theoretical text that, um, for example, that we have no idea of cause, um, that the um, our notion of cause or our use of the term cause has to do with um, just a habit of uh, constant conjunction. So we see um, uh, event A or event of type A, and then we see events of type B um, repeated, um, you know, fire and smoke, and we see fire and then we see smoke, um, you know, constantly repeated. And then we, we just as a result of habit, um, we use the term cause and we say the fire causes smoke. Um, uh, but then, so this, in, in his sort of rational or his use of reason, Hume argues that we, we don't have any um, notion of cause. But then in his, uh, his more like, uh, and even he, he admits this himself, this is something that we can only sort of believe when we're sitting in our study and, you know, reading or, or writing philosophical texts. But then as soon as we, um, you know, get up from the table and, and, you know, make a cup of tea or get something to eat or whatever, then we're immediately um, using our, our concept of, of causation, um, you know, for everything that we do. Uh, and uh, uh, so we we have this sort of disjunction between reason that leads us to this skepticism and then our practical life where we um, have to rely on, on these concepts that we rationally think are unfounded. Uh, and so trying to overcome this opposition or trying to deal with this opposition between reason and practical life, I think, is a, is a bigger problem beyond just the religious context in which um, Jacobi or Demaitre are, are operating. Uh, and, and it's a, like a, I think, still a live philosophical problem, even if you don't have any sympathy with the um, sort of religious answer that Jacobi gives. Yeah, I was reading about um, Mendelssohn's, uh, this like allegory, I think it was a description of a dream that he had of um, common sense and reason as sort of like personae um, traveling through the mountains. And I guess the point was that they often part ways, but usually come back to one another and their, re their reuniting is like mediated by reason. And it was, it wasn't, it was speculation and common sense. Uh, reunited by reason, but I, you know, I was thinking like, well, it's kind of stupid to say that common sense should should like trump the the kind of the reasonable and speculative position. But you know, even when we're working through like a text like this, it's 
common for somebody to say, you know, and this makes sense because if you think about it in this in this context, there's this kind of common sense application that we can make of this this idea. Um, and yeah, I think just you know, further to what you were saying, it's obviously it's still a big issue. Um, the you know whether or not anybody would believe anything that seems to totally fly in the face of everyday experience or whether that would be, you know, make for a convincing argument or, um, it does seem that there has to be some kind of connection to common sense. And I would, I would put it, um, I mean, common sense is a, a kind of a complicated, um, term. I think like that there's a lot of different things that are included under what we call common sense. Like, um, you know, there's, I guess sort of the the basic structure of what the world looks like, uh, you know, things like you know events have causes and and so on. Uh, but then we also have um, sort of um, I guess you could call them like maxims of practical life, like you know you shouldn't spend all your money on candles or whatever. Um, right. uh, um, you know, just sort of uh, practical um, practical maxims of like how to live. Uh, uh, a good life or not not even a good life but a, a sort of um decent life um and and so common sense includes a lot of different things but what i would sort of focus on or, or the one that i think is maybe the most interesting problem is integrating um or finding a connection between um between uh reason or the speculative um uh use of reason and then practical life um in the sense that um we can uh, we can, in practical life, we have to sort of think of ourselves as finite agents. So we are situated in a particular historical and social circumstances. You know, you have to you have to deal with this specific situation that you find yourself in, and and not just sort of reason about um, you know uh, principles of morality in general. But you have to say, you know, what should I do in this specific situation? Uh, and so finding a way to integrate or connect the the you know, our rational understanding of the world, you know, what, what the structure of the world is and what um, uh, the nature of, the, of a human being is and so on, these sort of speculative ideas, uh, and then connecting that to, you know, our understanding of this specific situation and deciding what I'm going to do now. Um, right. I think that's, that's um, a, an interesting and, and difficult problem that is sort of uh, uh, in line or is connected to the the types of problems that Jacobi and de Maitre were talking about. Yeah, that's a great point. Sorry, go Sorry. ahead, Ali. Sorry. So uh, another interesting point is like uh, at the end of this this part, then what it says is that the individual is not part of a single system. Uh, that that part. So what what I understand from this one is like the individual uh, belongs to. I mean the. The the agency of subjective individual doesn't doesn't tell the whole thing whole order of the world. So at at the end of the day, like the individual, there there is some kind of like dogmatic force, dogmatic force like a, which individual individuals can't do anything about. So so uh, I just like uh, found like the uh master metalist idea is like the in a way like related to the emergence of a totalitarianism. Cause like uh after this time maybe like um uh the uh, people would think about I mean the the era of enlightenment has come so um you can't go back to some kind of like uh the the era of like the the, the god but instead uh of that like uh if matters idea um uh, 
uh, was convinced at the time, maybe like uh, as uh, uh, stated in an on, on academic paper, maybe it has to do with like uh, some kind of, I mean, the emergence of totalitarianism, is it? So kind of like there is a part that human beings can't do, can't control. There is some kind of like a absolute one, like a not of God, but of something. So did Metaro try to point out that kind of thing? Yeah, I think um, the, some of the criticisms that Demetre makes of the French Revolution are similar to criticisms that some 20th century writers made of uh, communism in the sense that they, they take it that um, uh, trying to use uh, our reason to produce a better order of society inevitably leads to tyranny um, because you, you have to, like, um, and it means an individual is sort of uh, judging the social order and saying this is um, this social order is inadequate and um, uh, we have to instead institute you know my preferred system but uh, every other individual will have some other system that they would prefer and so the only way to actually implement um, your preferred system is to impose it by force so this is the type of argument that's used by um, right-wing authors uh, you know after the French Revolution and then again in the 20th century um, and uh, and so uh, instead of sort of using our reason to judge the social order and come up with a better one, um, they think that we have to subordinate our reason to the existing social order, which is itself um, has a sort of divine authority. It's it's subordinated to the divine order that actually governs it. Uh, and so. Um, uh, this is um, a similar type of argument as uh, as we find in uh, 20th century right-wing authors. Oh, okay. Thank you. Um, I think, yeah, Angus, you said you had to leave around, uh, uh, yeah. around now, um, I think, right? Yeah, I should probably head to bed. Yeah, okay. So let's, um, let's stop here, uh, and then we'll pick up on the section on Bonad next time. Um, Okay, so let me make sure that I write down where we are um, for, for next time so that we don't get uh, lost as we did to start today. Um, but yeah, so thank you everyone for coming out and uh, hope to see you next week.